Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have, had, have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Well, I think uh, a sermon on uh, a topic like this, marriage and divorce, is the kind of uh, thing, kind of sermon which is likely to make few friends. Uh, That's because I think divorce is always a painful uh, topic, whether we've experienced divorce, whether friends of ours uh, or our parents have experienced divorce, or uh, whether because we're afraid uh, of divorce or the scars that divorce uh, might bring. I guess uh, as we begin this morning there's a a few things I want to say and one of the things I want to say is that what we're trying to think about this morning is not so much the past but the future. We're not trying to undo the past but to think about what's God's plans for marriage and what do we do, uh, how do we think about marriage and divorce. Uh, There's a place I think for thinking about the past and and a place for repenting from past mistakes But often in the realm of relationships, things done are hard to undo. Uh, And one of the hardest things I think to come to grips with in the Gospel is that Jesus forgives our sins and our sins are hurled into the depths of the sea and yet we continue to live in this world with the consequences of our sins and those consequences are not easily put aside. And so as we think about uh, divorce and marriage this morning, I, I hope that we can keep... Uh, those things in mind. Uh, Think about what's God's plan for marriage and also think about the great uh, balm of healing which the Gospel is for sins uh, in the past. Well, chapter 19 begins with the Pharisees coming to Jesus. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day and they come to Jesus and they ask Jesus a question about divorce in order to test him. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? It helps, uh, I think, 
uh, to get some background in trying to understand why they come to Jesus with this particular question. Uh, If you've got a Bible with you, turn back to the fifth book of the Bible, to Deuteronomy, to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So this is the only, only verse in the Old Testament, law at least, which kind of mentions divorce at all. And, uh, and Moses wrote there in Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house And if she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So it's the only verse in the, in the law at least that mentions divorce and it's really only mentioned in passing. And in Jesus' day the religious leaders, the Pharisees, would debate among themselves what it meant to find something indecent. Uh, there were a few different schools of thought and the two main ones were called the Shammai school and the Hillel school. Uh, the, the Shammai uh, school thought that the only reason for divorce could be adultery and the Hillel school thought that people could divorce for any and every reason which is what they ask Jesus to say, can people divorce for any and every reason? So in the Mishnah, the Mishnah is kind of a Jewish document that was written about the second century and it kind of uh, it has a whole lot of laws uh, and rules that the, the Jewish uh, people had come up with. Uh, there it says in the Mishnah, The house of Shammai say a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity, so sexual immorality, since it is said because he has found in her indecency in anything, which is Deuteronomy 24. And the house of Hillel say even if she has spoiled his dish, since it is said because he has found in her indecency in anything. So so the Hillel school, you could do it for any reason. If If you muck up the dinner, you could get a divorce. And Rabbi Akiba He says, even if he found someone else prettier than she, since it is said, and it shall be if she find no favour in his eyes. So so it could be if they spoiled the dish or if uh, you found somebody else better looking. So the Pharisees come and ask Jesus what he thinks. Not because they want to know what Jesus actually thinks, but because they want Jesus to take a side so that Jesus makes enemies for himself. But Jesus refuses to take sides and instead he basically says, you're asking the wrong question. What a depressing question to ask. When can I get a divorce? Instead of asking, what can I get away with? Jesus asks a better question. What's God's purpose in marriage? Jesus goes back to creation. He goes back to the book of Genesis. In, uh, in, Genesis, in verse 4 and 5 of Matthew 19, he quotes Genesis 1 and 2 and he says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become 
one flesh. And here's the implication of that. So they are no, no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. So the short answer in, in Jesus' mind to the question, when is it okay to divorce? The short answer to that question is, that's not the question. The purpose of marriage is that the two become one and remain one. The short answer then is, divorce is never the best option. There's a long answer that we'll get to in a moment. But God's purpose in marriage was that marriage would last and not break down. In marriage, God actually does something incredibly profound, Jesus says. God makes two people one. Jesus is saying, actually, that marriage is not just something that we do, that we decide on, but, but Jesus is saying that God makes the two people one, what God has joined together. Let man not separate. God's purpose in marriage was that two people would be one, one until death. I, uh, I recently heard a, a person make an observation uh, about what always strikes them at, at a marriage, at, at a wedding day, on a wedding day. They are always struck by the fact that the two people are committing to something that they don't know what it's going to cost them. They don't know what the future holds. They're committing to this uh, really intense uh, commitment and they have no idea what that's going to look like, what shape that's going to take. Who knows what their marriage vows will require of them? Who knows if the next day their husband or their wife might be hit by a car and they have to spend the rest of their lives nursing their spouse and looking after them. Their spouse might suddenly develop an illness. They might suddenly develop anxiety or schizophrenia. Their spouse undoubtedly will have character traits that they never knew about and that are really hard to live with and that are really grating. The fact that the commitment of marriage is, ma is being made in spite of what the future might hold is actually what makes marriage so profound. It's the great cost, the great cost of the commitment actually, which is what makes marriage what it is, what makes marriage so precious. That's what makes marriage such a wonderful illustration of God's relationship with the church. Throughout the Bible, God says his relationship with us is like a marriage. God is committed, perseveringly committed, at great cost to his people. Marriage reflects God's forbearance and God's patience with us. It reflects God's persevering love. Not love which can simply be fallen into, whoops, I'm in love, whoops, I'm out of love again. But love which perseveres, love which commits, love which costs, love which forgives, love which perseveres. I was talking to uh, a minister the other day and he was, he was just telling me the kinds of things that he does when he uh, does marriage counselling with people who are well, pre-marriage counselling with people. And he always goes to the vows and he, he says, you know, for better or for worse. You know, you can probably think of what better is, but what's worse? Imagine the worst. And that's what you're committing to. But that's what makes marriage and the love in marriage so deeply profound. 
The permanence of marriage uh, is also, it's not just what makes it so profound, it's also why it's very important to think carefully before marrying. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Church of England prayer book used to say uh, that marriage is not to be entered into lightly or wantonly to satisfy men's carnal lusts or appetites, but discreetly, advisedly, soberly and in the fear of God. One of my lecturers used to say that, uh, that particularly as a parent, you want to create an environment when, your children are, when you're raising your children, you want to create an environment where they can ask you what you think of their prospective perspective marriage partner. Not because uh, parents should have the final say, but because you want to raise your children in such a way that they value the opinion and the wisdom of what other people think. So often we're blind to the character flaws of other people uh, and it's important, especially in something that's so permanent, to involve not just our own feelings but the wisdom uh, of other people who we trust. Now, to becoming one and staying one is God's glorious purpose in marriage. And when we start to ask, when can I get a divorce, we've already lost the battle. Now, we need to ask, what's God's purpose and how can I fulfil that purpose in my marriage and in my life? But if that's the case, if that's God's purpose, then the $64 million question is, why did God allow divorce in the Old Testament? And that's what the Pharisees ask next. They say in verse 7, why then, if that's the case, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, because it was not this way from the beginning. Why did Moses allow for divorce? He says, because of our hardness of heart. That is, it's because of our sin. It's because our sin destroys relationships and we're unable to live with God's purpose for marriage. But that sin and hardness of heart, still, according to Jesus, only permits for one exception. So in verse 9, he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So the only exception in Jesus' mind to uh, divorce, that allows divorce, is marital unfaithfulness. And the question is what that means. The word uh, behind it, the Greek word, is the word, uh, is a word which refers to sexual immorality. So it's not just marital unfaithfulness, but it, it, it conveys a, uh, sexual immorality. Uh, the Shammai school, that one I mentioned earlier, which was the hard line one, right? there was a hard line one that said you could, you could only divorce for sexual immorality. They held that sexual immorality was quite a broad category. So it could include a wife going outside with her hair unfastened or spinning, sorry, this one kills me, spinning cloth in the street with armpits uncovered. (laughs) (laughs) And bathing in the same place as men. I mean, you could say shoulders, why armpits? Anyway, but um, 
But so they viewed sexual immorality really broadly, right? But Jesus has just argued that what is central to marriage is two becoming one and that's manifest most clearly in marriage in sex when a husband and wife are united in the most intimate way. Clearly for Jesus, the kind of sexual immorality that he was talking about, which breaks that oneness, that one fleshness, the kind of sexual immorality that he's talking about is adultery because it shares with somebody outside the marriage what is absolutely fundamental to marriage, oneness and unity. Marriage is more than sex. Marriage is way more than sex. Sex doesn't make a marriage. Sex doesn't make people married, but sex can destroy a marriage. And sex alone has the power to break apart what God has put together. It's worth thinking, I I think, there's there's a lot of difficult questions about that and I think there's a few difficult questions which is worth thinking a bit Uh, about in a bit more detail. Uh, First, it's worth saying, just because adultery means you can divorce someone, that doesn't mean that it's the best option. Just because adultery means you can divorce someone, that doesn't mean that it's the best option. So remember the Pharisees were asking the wrong question, when can I get a divorce? And Jesus wants them to ask, what's God's purpose in marriage? And God's purpose in marriage is that people stay together and that they sort out the sins which have marred and which still mar their relationship. In the Bible, as I said, God's relationship with the church, with us, is referred to as a marriage. The church is described not as a wonderful loving wife but as a a sexually immoral and adulterous bride. But God perseveres with his people. The prophet Hosea was told to marry an adulterous woman and to stick with her as a model of God's persevering love for his people. People who stay in marriage after one person has committed adultery can be a great witness to God's persevering love in the Gospel. I had a friend that I studied with uh, and he was, a, he was a great guy and I remember one day he gave his testimony and he was pretty open ab- about his past as he was because he thought it was helpful for the church and he hadn't been married. Uh, I probably told this story before but anyway, he hadn't been married but he'd got his girlfriend pregnant uh, and after he got his girlfriend pregnant he went off and uh, slept with somebody else and it all came out uh, and it was a complete disaster. But at his lowest point, pulling over at the side of the road and being physically ill because he was so disgusted with the kind of person that he was, he realised that what he needed to do was to repent and what he needed to do, what God wanted him to do, was to make that relationship with his girlfriend right. They were both Christians but they'd fallen horribly into sin. Uh, The girl's parents didn't want him to marry, uh, didn't want them to marry, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. Uh, And it took two years or three years to work through all those difficulties. And now they have, they're married, they have lots of children uh, and it's a wonderful marriage and a great testament, I think, to the power of the gospel. He said, what's God's purpose? You see, that's what was behind it. He said, what's God's purpose? God's purpose is that I should marry this woman 
that I should love her, that I should forgive her, that she should forgive me, that that we should be reconciled. It was immensely costly. But their relationship now is a testimony to the power of the gospel and to the power of God's love and to the power of God's forgiveness. Now that's not always possible. It would be lovely to think, wouldn't it, that that's always possible, but the truth is that it's not. Even in the Old Testament, God says he filed for divorce from Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3. To stay is always the ideal, but it's not always possible. So just because adultery means you can't divorce someone, that doesn't mean that it's always the best option. Second, what about the case where people uh, have divorced on other grounds, not on the basis of sexual immorality, and have remarried? What counsel can we give them? I think the counsel that we can give them is that some things which have been done are not easily undone. So in Deuteronomy 24, when the man divorced his wife and she remarried someone else and then that second husband died or, or divorced her, then the first husband, he couldn't remar- they couldn't remarry, they couldn't get back together, the wife and the first husband. Some things can't easily be undone but they can still be repented of, owned as sins, brought to the cross, forgiven by God, hurled into the depths of the sea. And what God forgives in his mercy, the rest of us should forgive as well and uh, when there's been acknowledgement and repentance. So what do we do? What uh, counsel can we give to people who have divorced for other reasons, for reasons other than adultery, but haven't remarried, what ought they to do? I think in light of what Jesus said about the purpose of marriage, the desire always ought to be for reconciliation. Where that isn't possible, Jesus' message is clear, don't remarry because in reality that first marriage still holds. Marriage can't be annulled, disintegrated apart from adultery. Last, what does Jesus' position mean in the case of things like abuse and neglect? Uh, Is it really impossible to divorce when one partner is being abused? That's a tricky question. I think it's important to understand that divorce is not the same thing as separation. So divorce properly understood includes the right to remarry. Does that make sense? So if you divorce, then that means you are open to remarry. There's no such thing as, as a divorce which doesn't include the ability to remarry. So it seems to me that in the case of an abusive spouse, it would be possible to separate but without the right to marry someone else. In the case of abuse and neglect, uh, it isn't the case that a husband or a wife should just put up with that. You know, if you're being abused by your husband uh, or by your wife, you don't, have to, you don't have to live through that. You don't have to just grit your teeth and bear it. You should tell people about that. Uh, tell the church, tell the police. Uh, get help. But should there be a divorce, I think Jesus is saying no. I think Jesus is saying that that marriage still holds The couples might live out the rest of their lives separated 
but neither couple has the right to remarry. These are hard questions, I think. But at the end of the day, what we have to hold in front of our minds is that Jesus' interest is not when is it okay to divorce, but what's the purpose of marriage? And we need to hold in front of our eyes not just what we think the purpose of marriage is, but what God thinks the purpose of marriage is and what the model God has set for us is in terms of his relationship with the church. And that ought to guide us in how we think about persevering in marriage. So Jesus sets a pretty high standard for marriage. The purpose is to stay together. In the case of adultery, there's a way out, but it's not, even then it's not the ideal. And uh, unsurprisingly, I suppose, the disciples just can't cope with that idea when you see what kind of was going around uh, amongst the religious leaders of the day, they, they thought that was pretty extreme. And they say, well, if that's the case, if that's the situation between a husband and a wife, then it's better not to marry, which is a pretty ungodly response, to be honest. Uh, it's too hard, it's too hard to commit, so why bother? That reveals a pretty low view of marriage uh, and a pretty low view of what makes marriage valuable. But what's really surprising, I think, is that Jesus turns their cynical remark, they were being cynical, well, if it's that hard, what's the point of marriage? And Jesus turns that actually into a serious observation. He says in verse 11, not everyone can accept this, that not everyone can accept the idea of not marrying, but only those to whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In Jesus' day, uh, particularly in the Jewish world, to not marry was kind of just unthinkable. It just wasn't done. Uh, It was, I mean, particularly because so much of your personal worth and your personal value uh, was caught up in that, particularly as a woman. It was a very difficult situation as a woman not to marry. Uh, So so not to marry was very strange. But Jesus is bucking that trend when he suggests that not marrying and remaining celibate is actually a plausible alternative. Though, importantly, not for the reasons that the disciples suggest. The disciples suggest that the great reason for not marrying is because it's too hard. Because I can't commit. And Jesus says, no, that's not the reason. Jesus gives other reasons. But the reason isn't because marriage is too hard. Jesus gives his reasons. He uses the metaphor of a eunuch to describe a person who's single uh, and celibate. So the first two categories of people that he mentions who are single and celibate are those who are born eunuchs or made eunuchs by men. And in the language of the metaphor, he's talking about people uh, who have had, if you like, singleness and celibacy thrust upon them by circumstances, either because of uh, birth uh, or because of what's happened to them in their later life. It's people who have had celibacy and singleness thrust upon them, not by choice, uh, but by what's happened. The third category refers to those who chose to remain single and celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That is, in order to serve God and for greater usefulness in God's kingdom. And Jesus says to his disciples that the person who can accept that should accept it. Not because it's... uh, intrinsically more holy to be single 
but because being single and being content in that is God's gift to you and God's gift to the church. Just like marriage is God's gift to people and marriage is God's gift to the church. Jesus' statement, I think, is as countercultural today as it was in the first century, particularly in the church, maybe not outside the church. Jesus' words are just as true today as they were then. Not everyone can accept it. But I think it's really important, particularly in thinking about marriage and divorce, it's really important that the church reclaims a solid and robust theology of singleness. It's important to realise that being single is not the end of the world. You are not less of a person because you are not married. You're not less of a person because you don't have children. It's important uh, to realise that because there are lots of people who aren't married who would really like to be married. And without a robust theology theology of singleness, that just seems like bad luck. It's important to have a robust theology of singleness because without that, it seems spectacularly unfair to say to people whose marriages have broken down, you can't, you can't remarry. It's increasingly important in a world uh, where saying to people who struggle with same-sex attraction, you should stay celibate and single, in a world where that seems, where staying celibate and single seems almost unthinkable, it's so important that the church has a robust theology of singleness. You see, what makes singleness hard, I think, is that we were created to be married. We were created for a single, deep, intimate, physical relationship. We were created like that. And not having that is painful and difficult, whether that's because of marriage breakdown, whether that's because of the death of a spouse, or whether it's because we've never been married the reality is living without that is deeply painful. We long for that oneness, for that unity. Even within marriage, we long for it and fail to find it in its fullest sense. And there's only one thing really that can overshadow the pain and that's devoting ourselves to the oneness that we find in Jesus Christ, the oneness that we find with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit is the ultimate expression of what marriage was meant to be and what marriage inevitably fails to be. The only way to dull the pain of not being married for those who are not married is to give ourselves, as Jesus says, more fully to Christ, to live for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Before uh, I finish let me just say something about what that looks like in practice. It's all a bit fluffy really, isn't it? I mean, it's all very well to say. If you're not married, your prime relationship is with Jesus Christ and that is the most satisfying thing in the whole world. But it's a bit intangible, isn't it? You know? Uh, What does that look like? What does it look like to give myself fully to Jesus? 
to love him with all my heart in a more, you know, in a more profound way perhaps than uh, people who are married are able. What does that look like? Well, I've thought about that for many years uh, and wrestled with that for many years and perhaps uh, what I say can be a help to those uh, who are not married at the moment for whatever reason that might be. I always thought that the answer to not being married was to look for other deep, profound relationships with other people, other people in the church. But I think that's a, a terrible mistake, actually. I think that's the almost certain way to fail in being satisfied in the single life. I think the answer is much deeper and actually much harder to live out. If our most profound relationship is with with Jesus Christ and the church is the body of Christ, then the best way that I can love Christ with all my heart is to give myself to the church in all its diversity, in all its varied colours, in all its uh, strangeness and in all its differences. And the way that I receive the love of Christ is not by looking for that love in one or two people here and there who have the same interests as me, who do the same things and love the same things as I do, but the way that I receive the love of Christ in the most profound and deepest way is actually to receive the love of Christ from all kinds of different people in the church. The more you give yourself to Christ by giving yourself to lots of different people, the greater the joy. And the more you receive the love of Christ by receiving it from all kinds of different people, the more you receive the tangible love of Christ through his body. Singleness uh, then is not so much uh, an opportunity for no commitment, but singleness is an opportunity for a different kind of commitment, a commitment to loving and serving Jesus with the extra freedom that God has given to those of us who are married or not married or no longer married. The Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked, when is it okay to divorce? And Jesus said, that's the wrong question because the purpose of marriage is lifelong commitment for the glory of God to reflect God's persevering commitment to us. And the purpose of singleness is to use the freedom that God has given us to love and serve Christ for the glory of God. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wonderful gift of marriage. Lord, thank you that you created us for that purpose, to be married, uh, to commit ourselves to a single relationship of deep uh, and profound love and deep and profound commitment. Lord, thank you for the marriages that you've given to all of us here who are married and thank you for the great blessing that they are. Lord, for those who are married and who are struggling in marriage, Lord, give them strength, give them grace, give them mercy, give them forgiveness, give them perseverance. Help them to live out what you have modelled for us in your relationship with us that persevering and costly love which perseveres until the end. Lord, for those of us who are not married, for whatever reason that might be, Lord, thank you for the great gift 
that that position is to us as well. Lord, it doesn't always seem like a great gift, but thank you so much that in your wisdom you always know better, uh, better, what's better for us than what we think are for ourselves. Lord, help those of us who are single to uh, bear up under the sadness that that might bring. Lord, help those of us who are single to devote ourselves to loving Christ by loving his body, the church. Lord, help us to receive the love of Christ by receiving the love of his body, the church. Lord, we pray that that might be true, not just for those who are unmarried, but for all of us, young or old, married or unmarried. Lord, that we might love Christ with all our hearts by loving his church and that we might receive the love of Christ by receiving the love of his church. Finally, Lord, we want to pray for those whose marriages have broken down. Lord, we pray for healing and for help. Lord, we pray for forgiveness. Lord, where it's possible, we pray for reconciliation. Lord, we pray for those uh, children whose parents' marriages have broken down. Lord, we pray for those friends who we know whose marriages have broken down. Lord, be with those who are scarred by the sinfulness of our own hearts. Lord, help us to find grace and mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.